0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus. You can grab a Black Pew Bible that's in front of you in Exodus. Uh, if, you, if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, it's on page 60. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 19, and we're going to be looking at the first six verses. And if you are willing and able, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. Listen to what the, God, what the word of God has to say. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Once upon a time, there was an old man who wished to have a son. He wanted to have a son so badly that he made one out of wood. And that night when the man fell asleep, a fairy entered into the workshop and brought the puppet to life. The fairy tells the puppet that if he proves himself to be brave, truthful, and unselfish, he can become a real boy. Well, the puppet has to overcome all these obstacles in order to become a real boy. And he makes all sorts of bad decisions. He runs away from home and does all these other things and eventually gets swallowed by this great whale. But in the end, he rescues his father, Geppetto, and the fairy finally decides that the puppet has proved himself to be brave, truthful, and unselfish. And Pinocchio is then brought to life as a real boy. Uh, The animated movie, Pinocchio is one of Disney's most celebrated films. It's 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. Do not watch, apparently, the live-action version, which is rated at 28%. But have you ever noticed, have you ever noticed, that many of the stories that we love is about a search for identity? Whether it's Mirabel in Encanto, or Luke Skywalker, or Huck Finn, or even Jean Valjean, when he asks, who am I? in Le Miserable, These are all stories about identity. Who am I? What is my place in the world? In our present Western moment, the sentiment is that you can choose your own identity. Autonomy, authenticity, individuality, that is the rage right now. Carl Truman observes that we see ourselves as plastic people who can make and remake ourselves according to our own ever changing desires. We live and breathe what? Identity politics. We choose whatever morality suits us. We choose whatever sexual partners and arrangements please us, please us. And so, as Kanye West puts it, I'm nothing if I can't be me. So, who are you? What is your identity? More importantly, what does God have to say about your identity? Our passage this morning in Exodus 19 brings clarity to that question regarding identity. So if you haven't already turned in your Bibles to Exodus 19, as we return back to our exposition in this book, now we haven't been in this book for quite some time, it's been nearly two months since we've been here, so let me just kind of catch everyone up on where we've been so far in the story of exodus for over a year now i've been stressing that the main theme of exodus is not so much about freedom or uh, or deliverance or even exodus but it's about the god who makes himself known and god has made himself known in these early chapters of exodus In chapters 4 through 13, it's this confrontation with Pharaoh and the 10 plagues, and and he makes himself known as Israel is delivered out of Egypt. Once again, he does the same thing in chapters 14 and 15. God makes himself known as Israel crosses the Red Sea and their enemies are drowned in the Red Sea. Again, God makes himself known in the wilderness in chapters 16 through 18 we were earlier about Mara and Massa and Meribah these places of testing from the Lord teaching them that when they're grumbling and complaining that they need to trust the Lord for their daily bread Now in chapter 19 the first verse of our passage indicates that three months have passed since Israel left Egypt and they're, after they've kind of entered into this wilderness and they finally have made it to the mountain of God. And guess what? They're going to be there for a very long time. Uh, we know this because verse 1 says that they come to this area in the third new moon. They arrive at the mountain at the third new moon. Numbers ten eleven says that they would leave Sinai in the second year, in the second month. In other words, they will be at the mountain for nearly a year. A whole year at the foot of this mountain. Well, what are they doing at this mountain for a whole year? I mean, just besides laundry. I mean, they're, they're parked there for the foot of the mountain for a whole year. And what are they going to do? What's happening? Well, the people of God are going to receive the law of God. They're being commissioned by God, told not only who they are, but how they ought to live. They're going to be getting, in this next year, the Ten Commandments, the rest of Exodus, all the events there. They're going to get the whole book of Leviticus, all of Numbers there. For a year, God will unveil with clarity and comprehensiveness law and covenant. And in doing so, he reveals to, to Israel their identity. He reveals to them, this is who you are, and this is your purpose. So while we are not Israel, these verses in chapter 19 help us to understand our identity even as a church. So what does Exodus 19 have to say? What does God have to say concerning our identity? First, like the Israelites, you are redeemed. That's the first of our three points this morning. You are redeemed. Look at verse 3 and 4. Moses went up to God, and the Lord calls out to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, God is about to enter into a covenant with the people of Israel right now, okay? But before he does that, he reminds his people of what he has done for them. And all those phrases in that verse are very important. First, he says, you yourselves. That is emphatic in the Hebrew and in the English. Uh, You yourselves. You know what I did. Remember, because you were there, you saw what I did to Pharaoh. You saw how I protected you. When the plagues came, you saw me drown Pharaoh's army. You saw me feeding you in the wilderness. You were there. Remember, remember, you are a redeemed people. And if you belong to Christ, you have seen an act of redemption even greater than the one that led Israel out of Egypt. You have been given new life. And when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, God saved you. Some of you remember very distinctly who you used to be. What you were chasing. The wasted life that you had. You remember the weariness of yourself and the constant pursual of approval and success. I mean, even if you've grown up in the church, you, you, and you might not have some dramatic salvation story. You too have seen the work of God in your life. The sting of conscience, the regret of poor choices, the agony of sinful choices. Remember what God has done. Remember the patience he had with you. Remember the experience of peace when you placed your trust in him. Remember the times of answered prayer. Remember the time when you read the Bible and it was exhilarating. Remember the time when somebody preached and you were excited Remember your redemption. Notice also in these verses the passivity of Israel. They didn't do anything. Notice that. God is the one who redeemed. He says, I bore you on eagle's wings. This is a picture of a watchful guardianship. And God says, I carried you along like an eagle carries her children when they first learn to fly. You, de- you can't claim credit for your redemption. He says, uh... You didn't rally together, you didn't, you know, uh, engage in 40 years of terrorism in, in Egypt and unsettle the Egyptian government, form an army and overthrow Pharaoh and then go on this military expedition into the wilderness. No. He says, you didn't hop on this eagle and push and pull the wings so that it would flap. No, you didn't do anything. He says, I did it. I bore you. Not because you deserve it, but because of my mercy. You know, I've just finished reading The Lord of the Rings. And if you don't know, uh, the cheat code in The Lord of the Rings are the eagles. The eagles are the ones that bear Gandalf the safety and, and help, you know, nerd out with me for a little bit here. They're the ones that are surrounded by, you know, when the good guys are surrounded by the orcs, the only hope they have is when they see in the distance, the eagles are coming, the eagles are coming. And this is how the hobbits escape Mordor. Because the eagles go into Mordor and swoop them up. Now, I know there's a question for all the Lord of the Rings nerds out there that you have about these eagles. Because you're like, well, uh, why, wasn't it, why didn't the eagles just help out in the first place? Why didn't they just pick up the ring, fly it over to Mordor, drop it in, and then done? You know, very short movies, even shorter book, right? But the imagery that Tolkien is drawing from is that the eagles will bear you to safety with tenderness and nurture. And it testifies to the salvation of the Lord. Now, finally, God says, I brought you to myself. God didn't just succeed in bringing them to Mount Sinai. He welcomed Israel to himself. (laughs) It's not geographical. It's relational, isn't it? You see, the goal of Israel's freedom was not freedom itself. I mean, what is the freedom for? It's freedom to be in a relationship with the Almighty, to be who they are meant to be, to worship and serve the true and living God. Let my people go. Why? That they may worship me. And, Christian, that is who you are. You are redeemed, you are united to Christ by faith. The answer to, am I significant? Have I done enough? Am I accepted? Well, the answer is settled for the Christian. Your life is hid in Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ and God, Colossians 3.3. 3. You don't have to go the distance like Rocky to prove that I'm not a bum. You don't have to be like Moana and disobey your parents and go on an adventure to find yourself. By God's sovereign grace, Christ redeemed you, and in a wonderful exchange, you placed, you gave Christ your sins. He suffered for your sins, and in this exchange, he gave you his righteousness. That's who you are. You are in Christ. 1 Peter 3, 18 puts it this way. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Isn't that just like Exodus right here? You have been brought near to the throne of grace, and in Christ you are significant because he makes you so. No longer do you work for approval, but from approval. No longer do you need to discover yourself and reinvent your identity. Your identity is found not within yourself, but outside of yourself. It is found in Christ, It's not that other identity markers and what you do with your life are of no consequence. Uh, Your race, gender, sexuality, family, occupation, marriage status, all those are important. But they are just not all important. At the most profound level, you are redeemed, known and loved, adopted by God. That is who you are. Second, not only are you redeemed, but you have a responsibility. You have a responsibility. Look at the first part of verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandments. We are introduced right now, and keep my covenant, sorry. We are introduced right now to the language of covenant in this verse. One of the dominant themes in scripture. Particularly, we are introduced to the Mosaic Covenant. And here's sort of a truncated, introductory version of that covenant. Now, a covenant is really about a committed relationship between two parties, right? Covenants elevate things to be more intimate. It kind of, so to speak, takes things to the next level, right? I mean, you understand that. You know, if a, guy's, you have a guy and a girl, they're dating, and they might say, hey, I'm committed to you, but they're unwilling to get married. I mean, it says something, right? Uh, That's why we enter into the covenant of marriage. They are, in one sense, taking it to the next level with promises and vows. And what I want us to focus on is that word, therefore, in verse 5. Because there is always a therefore in the Christian life. Israel's delivered, right? Yes, absolutely. Israel's free. Unquestionably. Are they redeemed? Absolutely. Therefore, obey my voice and keep my covenant. You know, this is all over scriptures, isn't it? This is all over our New Testament. Think about the book of Romans. And for 11 chapters, Paul says, this is who you are. Adopted, justified, alive, chosen in Christ. Then chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, By the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Ephesians, same thing. Three chapters of who you are, your salvation by grace alone. And then chapter four, therefore, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. There is always a therefore in the Christian life. A response in the Christian life. I mean, just look at your church bull- bulletin this morning. This, how, how, do we, how do we even organize our church worship? Well, You, you come in and you, you respond to God when he calls us to worship. And then we adore our God and then we respond in a prayer of confession because of who God is. And then we hear from God's word. And again, we have a, what's at the very end, a song of response. Now, let me be clear here that this is not an idea. There is no idea of salvation by works, by doing enough. Not even in this covenant with Moses. The law and stipulations and covenant are not the means of salvation. The covenant doesn't make Israel God's people. Look again. They already are God's people, aren't they? They've already been redeemed. That's past tense. It's done. In chapter 3, verse 7, God already says, I have seen the affliction of what? My people. He already calls them mine. In chapter 4, verse 22, God calls Israel his firstborn son. Already, they're theirs. So keeping the covenant was not a way to earn their salvation. Keeping the covenant is not a way for them to uh, remain saved. Many people don't understand this about the Mosaic Covenant. One commentator writes, Israel at this moment, should have told God, we don't want law, we want grace. But they weren't being offered law as an alternative to grace. They were being offered law as an expression of grace. Keep the law and you'll be who God made you to be. Keep the law, keep the covenant, if you want to experience all the blessings of the covenant, of the Mosaic covenant, rather than its curses. And the emphasis here is on responsibility. There is a therefore. Every covenant has its responsibilities. There's no such thing as a relationship without responsibility. And you know, you know, as a husband, maybe some of you out there, and maybe you, uh, maybe some of you are looking for that that dream, that fantasy land. You know, that there you can somehow be in a relationship without any responsibilities. Let me break it to you: it doesn't exist. That's a fantasy. Every relationship has responsibilities. Children, you're, you have responsibilities, don't you? When you're part of your family. Uh, your relationship with your parents mean you have a responsibility. You have a responsibility to what? Clean up your toys. You have a responsibility to do the laundry or try to do the laundry. You have a responsibility to to do all sorts of things to be part of the family. And you know, I do have a a particular child of mine, and sometimes I will tell this child to do something, and they'll say, what? You want me to do something? You don't love me. (laughs) And church, sometimes we're that way with God. You say, God, you want me to do something? Don't you love me? I thought it was all of grace. It seems these days we don't want to talk about law and obedience and commands. As if somehow it's alien to the freedom that we have in Christ. I'm free in Christ, you know, psh, don't talk to me about obedience. I'm all about grace, don't tread on me. But, beloved, redeemed ones, you have been bought with a price. Therefore, you are not your own. You're purchased for a purpose, reclaimed and recommissioned, saved from sin and saved to something and to someone. Third, you have a reason. You're redeemed, you have a responsibility, and third, and finally, you have a reason. Having interpreted the Exodus for Israel, God goes on to define what it will mean for Israel to be the Lord's people. First, Israel would be, right there, that phrase, a treasured possession. You see that in the end of verse 5. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Uh, the Hebrew word used for treasured possession is, a, is the word segula. You don't need to memorize that, but it's just interesting. It, it indicates royal property, specifically The most prized possession in a king's treasury. The same word will be used later in 1 Chronicles 29 for the gift that King David would use for building the temple. David had already given his royal revenue for the project of building the temple of God. But more was needed. And so David says in 1 Chronicles 29 I have a treasure of my own, Segula of gold and silver, and because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. This, in other words, means the private reserve. God is saying, I own everything. All the earth is mine, but you, Israel, will be specially prized, unique. You will be the crown jewel among the nations. I mean... I kind of tell this to my children all the time. I tell them, everything you have is mine. (laughs) See that toy you got for your birthday? Mine. (laughs) That red envelope you got from New Year's or whatever, that's mine also. But I also tell them, but all, all the things I have, you're my treasure. and my heart. I love you. And this was Israel's identity. They were God's precious people. Church, as you walk with God, do you know how precious you are? I mean, the world is always trying to find out who they are in so many different ways with self-talk and self-help and self-esteem. They're trying to get at something, aren't they? That's what the world is looking for. It's something deep within. We know we need to know that we're approved. We need to know that someone loves us and that there's something about us that matters in this world that we're special somehow, and the world goes after it and tries to find it in so many different ways and looking within themselves and always somewhat dissatisfied. In church, there may be times when you don't feel very precious and you struggle from one day to next for a variety of reasons. You're weighed down by stress at work or the time at home with small children, or you're discouraged by conflicts and difficulties, you don't feel very precious, but remember that you are God's treasure, and nothing can change that if you are in Christ. For you have been drawn close to God through faith in Christ. Israel is not only to be a treasured possession, but continue on in a verse a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, what does it mean to be a kingdom of priests? There seems to be a dual meaning here. One for Israel and one for the world. Within Israel, it meant that every single person in the kingdom had a special relationship with God, had a special access to God. And that's kind of what priests were. They were in this privileged position, a unique relationship with unique access to God that they might be able to uh, represent the people to God and God to the people. Truly a special relationship and calling. But the title kingdom of priests also has another meaning, one with global implications. As an entire nation, the Israelites are to be God's priests to the world. To the world. Israel's redemption, Israel's privileged position is not so that they could just stare at their belly buttons all day. They aren't only to intercede for one another, but as a kingdom of priests, they're to represent God to the world. They are to be set apart, to be a holy nation, so that all the other nations will also be redeemed and a treasured possession. Israel's chosen not only from the nations, but also for the nations. And like a priest, Israel is is to set an example to proclaim the truth of God and to live out the truth of God. They're to invite people from other nations to intercede for the world. They are to be this holy nation. Now, this isn't talking about being some, like, holy roller or some holier-than-thou attitude. Israel's distinctiveness is not to simply be better than the other nations, but categorically different. It's not about a national distinction— Rather, they are commissioned with sharing and displaying the divine nature, living in the likeness of their Lord. They are to be holy. Why? Because God is holy. That's what they were to reflect. Through Israel, God would make himself known to other nations. And if you're a Christian, this too is your calling the reason for your redemption, your purpose. Turn in your Bibles to First Peter chapter two. It's in your New Testament. You're gonna one way to get there is just start at the very end in Revelation and work yourself backwards a couple uh, books uh, into First Peter. In First Peter chapter two, verse nine says this: First Peter two nine. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, this is almost a therefore, isn't it? I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. God has sent you, has placed you in the office of a priest to show off his glory in what you think and say and do. He's given you the dignity and the sobering responsibility of showing those who don't know God what he is like by what you do every day. Isn't that? Don't verses like this just simply take your breath away. That's what you're doing. You're mirroring God to the world. God has put his name on us so that his reputation on earth depends on everything we say and do. We're representatives of his rule and character. You know, to make his name known, God didn't hire a PR firm. Uh, God didn't get an Instagram account and make a bunch of reels about himself. He redeemed the church church being separate and different and holy in this world is what you are called to do to mirror God holiness of course has fallen on hard times because what we all want to fit in boys and girls uh, children maybe you always want to do what everyone else is doing you don't want to kind of stand out sometimes and certainly uh, teenagers you, you kind of understand what that's like you perhaps know the pressure of having to fit in But let me tell you a secret if you are a a teen or about to be a teen or you're just one of the younger ones, you know, adults have the same exact problem. But if you are to follow Christ, you'll have to be different. You'll have to be holy. Now that doesn't simply mean that you don't smoke and you don't chew and you don't go with those that do. The example we set it's not kind of this ho-ho-ho kind of holiness. Ho-ho, you know, I'm so holy. and I don't know why it would sound like that. But in my mind, that's how we would sound. Ho-ho, I am so holy. and um, <laughs> Lauding, lauding our, our morality over others. But it is about humility and being salt and light of the earth, uh, to this world. Demonstrating in no uncertain terms, by our words and our actions, that we are a different pedigree. We are a holy people, imperfect as we are. And what will that look like? It might look like confessing sin. Perhaps it might just look like sustained peace when you receive a bad medical diagnosis. Or it's hope in your heart, even as you mourn the death of a loved one or the end of a relationship. It could mean a joyful submission as a wife and the sacrificial and pure life of a husband. Perhaps it's being unafraid to be unrecognized or even humiliated when, by the world standard, you ought to fight for your rights. Assert yourself. Or it's to give yourself to the local church. Or maybe it's just simply to share the good news to your colleagues, to your neighbors, to your friends, your schoolmates. Telling them about him regardless of whether that person comes to faith. All of this Christ himself did. And all of this Christ calls us to do. So church, be who you are. You are redeemed. You have a responsibility. And you have a reason. And it's to make him known. Now if you're here this morning and you are exploring Christianity, and you've followed along thus far. I know there's a lot that we've kind of gone through. You might think this is a little bit too much. Identity and redemption, responsibility, holiness. Embracing Christianity and salvation may seem to you simply too tall a task, too formidable. It feels like you're leaving behind everything that you've known in life. And I assure you that if you're feeling that way, that's a good sign. It means you get it. It means because Christianity is that. It is a radical changing of Lord's. It's a radical changing from living to yourself and living to God. Think about your life right now, your identity right now. Is it everything you thought it would be? Has your identity or search for identity merely brought weariness, anxiety, depression, maybe feelings of inadequacy? Um, Maybe you're the type of person that knows, I know who I am. I know exactly what I'm going to do. All right. Well, go do it. And you better do it well, and you better keep on doing it. How will you fare under such unrelenting pressure? Freedom, friend, is not the ability to invent your own identity. Inventing the meaning of life puts a weight on us that we were never meant to bear. And so I invite you today to respond to the good news of Jesus. You see, fundamentally, God says you are meant to be in a relationship with Him, but because of your sin and God's holiness, you are separated from God, destined for an eternal wrath. In hell, under the judgment of God. That is who you are. And there's nothing you can do, not enough good works for you to get yourself out of that predicament. Unlike Pinocchio, you can't save yourself by being brave, truthful, and unselfish. But God sent his son to die on the cross, bearing the sins of all those who would trust in him. And he rose again that we might have new life in Christ. A new identity that is settled forever and for an eternity. Approved by God. If you would but turn from living your own way and trusting in what Christ has done. So will you look to Christ this morning? Will you come to him this morning? Will you be? among the redeemed, his precious people. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, which is so clear, so convicting. And Father, we ask, Lord, that you would impress those truths upon our heart, that we might live out who we are in Christ as a church we pray Lord that you would be glorified by our action and deeds by our thoughts may the way we live be distinctive may we proclaim the excellencies of your grace, and may many come out of darkness and into light. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.